0: So we've been spending the four Sundays before Christmas on Psalm 2 this year because it is one of the clearest Old Testament passages pointing us forward to the coming of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And though I will read the entire Psalm once again, we're focusing this morning on the final section of the psalm, which is verses 10 through 12. And as I read Psalm 2 this morning, please notice that this final application section of the psalm begins with a now therefore. It is also one, the only one of the four sections of the psalm which doesn't include a quote. The first section, one through three, the kings and rulers of the earth are quoted, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The second section, four through six, has God responding to them, saying, as for me, I have set my king on on Zion, my holy hill. And then in the third section, seven through nine, the Messiah himself speaks quoting what God has said to him. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So now, in the fourth section, as I said, it begins with now, therefore referring to all of this conversation that's gone on before between humanity and God and God's Messiah. So let's read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have been you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And now this morning's part, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now before we dive into this final section, I'd like to review some of what we talked about already in this passage. Psalm 2 was written by David. David. We're told that in Acts 4.25. And it's closely related to God's messianic promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. So let's review that a little bit. When David was king, he built a palace for himself in Jerusalem. Then he felt bad that he'd built a house for himself, but hadn't built a house for God. For up until this time, the only dwelling place for God had been the tabernacle, which, of course, is merely a tent. So David began making preparations to build a temple for God in Jerusalem. But then he was interrupted in this process by the prophet Nathan. God had spoken to Nathan to tell him that David must not go forward with his plans to build God a temple. Nathan went on to tell David that God would raise up one of his sons to build the temple. Now that all made perfect sense. And David's son Solomon became king after David's death and went on to build a glorious temple for the Lord. Even God's promise that he would be a father to David's promised son didn't necessarily mean that David's son could not be a mere man. For that times this kind of thing is said of mere mortals in scripture. But there was one thing about God's promise to David through Nathan which went beyond this. God had said that his, this promised son of David would rule on David's throne forever. Now once Jesus came the meaning of this all became clear. But at the time, they didn't have the tools to grasp what this was talking about. But to speak to this mystery, God, at some point, also gave David Psalm 2, which revealed this promised Messiah was much more than just a mere human. He was not only God's son, I mean David's son, he was God's son. Not only like a son, but he would be God's begotten son, as Psalm 2-7 says. And somehow he dwelt in heaven with God. And he was not only to be king of Israel, but the king of all the nations on earth. However, there was one dimension of Christ's coming which Psalm 2 did not include. A dimension which wasn't revealed for 300 years more through the prophet Isaiah. And so I want to mention that. First of all, Isaiah reaffirmed and enlarged what 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2 had said about this promised son of David, this Messiah. For instance, in Isaiah 9, 6-7, it's a very familiar prophecy, we already uh, referred to it once this morning. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So you see that this is very much building on what God has already said in Second Samuel 7 and Psalm 2. But Isaiah also talked about this promised one as a tender servant in Isaiah 42 and as a man of sorrows pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities in Isaiah 53 and the end of 52 sadly while the people paid attention to Psalm 2 they did not pay enough attention to these prophecies of Isaiah thus They expected a Messiah who would bring about political deliverance to Israel from Rome through force. And they were not prepared for a Messiah who would suffer as a means of redeeming and conquering. So now as we approach this final section of Psalm 2, Verses 10 through 12. I'd like to focus on four things that are in these three verses. The first is God's stern warning. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Strong words. And we may be hesitant to say it, but the Bible is very clear. God is going to take vengeance on those who refuse him. Serve the Lord, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And there are plenty of similar warnings elsewhere in the scriptures. To some, this might seem heavy-handed. I mean, who does he think he is? God? Well, yeah, he actually is. We have to realize who we're dealing with here. This isn't Santa Claus. God is merciful, but he is no softy. If someone has the impression for a moment that it's okay with Jesus if you're not really into him, as long as you're a good person otherwise. You need to know that there isn't one shred of that in the Bible. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. God, of course, is not willing to share His throne with anyone. He is the King, and all must bow. And those who refuse to bow now will bow later. And they will experience terror beyond anything we experience on this earth. You can protest. You can argue. You can shake your fist at the heavens. A lot of folks do that. But if you do that, you are dishonoring the judge. And only fools dishonor the very one who is going to judge them. The issue isn't whether we like the way that God speaks here. The issue is, are we going to listen? If an all powerful, all knowing, all wise king threatens you with eternal destruction, you don't complain about his presentation. That's the point of the be wise part. Be wise. Does it really make sense to fight against the Almighty One? Does it make sense to struggle against the One who laughs at the combined forces of all the nations? Does it make sense to oppose the very One who controls every single thing in the universe? You know, in Francis Thompson's famous poem, The Hound of Heaven, there's a line that says, All things betrayeth thee who betrayeth me. In other words, turn against God and everything in the universe is suddenly turned against you because he controls it all. It's just not a wise thing to resist him. And yet that's exactly what many do. The epitome of foolishness. And yet foolishness resides in the heart of men in all of our hearts in fact the second part of this that I'd like to focus in on is the rejoice with trembling so the first was the stern warning now the rejoice with trembling it's in verse 11 serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling now the first part of verse 11 serve the Lord with fear could be understood in a way like a slave might act towards his master. But we're not talking about tyranny here, though Satan loves to convince people that God is a tyrant. But the second half of the verse makes it clear, rejoice with trembling. That's not tyranny. Rejoice with trembling. You see, this warning is actually extraordinarily gracious. An expression of God's kindness and love. He could just smash people for their rebellion, for setting themselves against the Lord, for wanting to burst his bonds and cast away his cords. But instead, he warns them, invites them, offers them an opportunity to escape the coming wrath. God wants our fear. Anything else is just foolishness. But he also wants our delight. He wants us to see that he is the greatest treasure of all. And then to rejoice in receiving him as our treasure. Rejoicing with trembling may be a rare experience in life. But it actually happens have you ever stood at the Grand Canyon? I don't know how you could have anything but, but fear and trembling and yet also rejoicing. Both. How about going out into space? You know, more and more people are now paying to go out into space and be able to see the earth from a distance. I mean, that has to be a similar experience, No. How about seeing a tornado or a waterspout from a safe distance? That's got to be an experience of trembling and rejoicing at the same time. Or walking on the moon, which few of us have ever done, but still, we can imagine what that would be like. One of the things I most enjoy in the winter is having a fire in my fireplace. And I think this is why, because it's a little, it's fearsome, but it's also beautiful and delightful. And the the combination is something very special. Rejoicing with trembling is a concept I think our society is growing weary of. I'm sorry, not weary, but leery of growing leery of it. They don't like the idea that it can be healthy to have fear and trembling towards someone. Good parents, for instance, whose children delight in their love but also respect their authority. Or the friendly police officer who people enjoy having around but they also are in their best behavior when he's there. And therefore, the concept of healthy fear and trembling is fading in our society, it seems to me. C.S. Lewis, I think, does a masterful job of illustrating rejoicing with trembling in his Narnia Chronicles with the great lion Aslan who made the earth shake with his roar and yet in whose mane his friends could bury themselves when they were brokenhearted or when they were just elated to see him. Read the Gospels. Read about how Jesus related to his disciples. And I think you'll understand rejoicing with trembling. Think about the story of Jesus calming the storm in Mark chapter 4. When a great windstorm arose, and the, such that the waves were breaking over the edge of the boat, and the boat was filling up with water, and Jesus was asleep in the stern, so they woke him. Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And he rebuked the wind, peace be still, and there was suddenly great calm. And it says, they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's rejoicing with trembling. The third part of this, these three verses that I'd like to focus in on is the call to kiss the sun. So we had God's stern warning and then we had the concept of Rejoicing with trembling. And now we have the call to kiss God's Son. Verse 12, kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. A major piece of this concluding portion of Psalm 2 is this call to kiss God's Son. It's not a call to believe he exists. It's not even a call to believe what he says although those things are implied. It's not merely a call to do good things or to keep his rules. And apparently God isn't looking for someone merely who will yield to him. God is calling us to kiss his son. He's looking for someone to get intimate with him. He's looking for a close personal relationship. Think about kisses. Kisses are not something that we give a lot of. The Son of God is asking for more than a polite greeting or the tip of a hat. Kissing requires closeness And always involves some risk. The Son of God isn't asking for something casual or easy. We can't just throw kisses at Jesus. You know, you can stand far apart from someone and throw them a kiss, but that's not what's being talked about here. This kind of kiss requires some vulnerability. Some argue that kisses here refer to submission. And that may be part of this. But in those times in the Bible, which they point to, where kissing seems to imply submission, kissing doesn't merely mean submission. For instance, it meant, it seems, affectionate and enthusiastic acceptance of one's authority over you, like When Samuel kissed Saul when he anointed him as king in 1 Samuel 10.1. Or like when God was speaking to Elijah in 1 Kings 19.18. Referring to those 7,000 folks who hadn't worshipped Baal. And refers to them as the 7,000 mouths which had not kissed Baal. There are also plenty of examples of people in authority kissing those under their authority. And I've given four here in the notes that you could look up. So kissing as mere submission is not an adequate way of thinking of this. It involved giving one's heart, not just giving one's obedience or allegiance. Like Catholics kissing the Pope. You know, in all the Bible, there's no reference to people kissing God. But here in Psalm 2, we can kiss God's Son. And that's what's so amazing about Christmas. He came in the flesh, He came as one of us. We heard Him, we saw Him with our eyes. We touched him with our hands, says John in his first epistle. This life was made manifest so that we have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, as he goes on to say. And notice in both Psalm 2 and in 1 John 1, this connection between the Father and the Son. You can't accept God the Father and reject His Son. You want God? Then kiss His Son. If you won't kiss the Son, you make yourself the enemy of God. Friends, we need to do a lot more kissing of the Son. It's deeper than obedience, it's deeper than surrender, it's deeper than belief. It's intimate, personal, affectionate. Jesus is not looking for acquaintances. He's looking for a bride. He's looking for a lover. And that brings us to the fourth point that I want to focus in on in this section of Psalm 2. In verse 12, the second half, the last part of the whole psalm, it says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And that's how it ends. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What does God require of us? To take refuge in him. This is the third surprise warning Or this is the third surprise in this context of this stern warning that God gives us in these verses. In the midst of, be warned, O rulers, serve the Lord with fear, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, we find, rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Take refuge in him. Refuge implies danger. Scary danger. And it implies that we find protection and safety in someone who loves us. Now the question arises though, what is the refuge from? What's the danger here? The only thing that the psalm talks about as fearsome is God himself. And that's exactly the point. He's the threat, but he's also the refuge from the threat. He gives refuge to his people from his own wrath, which is our greatest danger. How did he do this? How has he become our refuge from his own wrath? Well, that's what the cross is all about on the cross Jesus bore the wrath of God as a substitute for us for those who would receive him and love him and trust him he he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and Overseer of your souls. 1 Peter 2, 24-25. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who flee to Christ's cross as their safety from the righteous wrath of God. Beloved, let's take this Personally, God is speaking to us here be wise and be warned serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled blessed are all who take refuge in him. God's Son offers us forgiveness and grace if we will come to him and embrace him and link up with him. If not, we will perish eternally. We must decide, do we want God to be our friend or our enemy? There's no middle ground. There's no none of the above option. Some people are desperate to find a middle ground. They're willing to give Jesus a peck outwardly. But in their hearts, they still hold him at a distance. But this is a false kissing of the sun. When someone is kissing on the outside, but not on the inside. Instead, they might even be despising the person while kissing them on the outside. You see this in real life. It happens in marriages. It happens in families. It happens on TV. It also happens in the Bible. We see it in Judas, don't we? Who kissed Jesus while he was betraying him. But that was a false kiss, a pretend kiss. It wasn't a real kiss. It wasn't what Jesus is referring to in Psalm 2. Judas did not love Jesus in his heart while he was kissing Jesus on the cheek. So we're back to the main point. There are only two options. You either spit on him, as many did when he came, or you kiss him. If you're looking for popularity, a lot more people spit on him. So that might be your choice. But this choice will make or break your life. Either you will build on the rock or the rock will crush you. The Son of God makes a great friend unlike any other. But he makes a terrible enemy unlike any other. You know, there is no more blessed thing than to hear God say, Come to me, my love. And there's no more horrific thing than to hear God say, Depart from me. I never knew you. I am against you. Let us pray. Oh Lord, our God. You speak so clearly to us in Psalm 2 and we thank you for that because Lord it's our nature and our tendency to want to find a way where we can live with one foot in both worlds but we remember that Jesus himself said no man can serve two masters he will either love the one and hate the other or vice versa oh Lord help us To plant both of our feet firmly on the solid rock. Jesus Christ, help us to kiss the sun with affection and fondness and joy. And now, dear Lord, as we come to the table that you commanded that we set It is such a joy for us to be able to kiss you by partaking of your body and your blood. And we pray that as we do so, dear Lord, that it would not be merely an outward thing. But that our hearts would burn with affection for you the one who has lived and died for us, the one in whom our eternal hope is based. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.